Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. President Trump called our country's libel laws a sham and a disgrace and pledged a review of them yesterday. Trump's comments came after the publication of the book Fire and Fury that depicts him as erratic and inept. Trump has filed several defamation lawsuits over the years, all without success, and he has advocated changes to libel laws before. During the presidential campaign, Trump promised this in an appearance in Fort Worth, Texas in February. I'm going to open up our libel laws so when they write purposely negative and horrible and false articles, we can sue them and win lots of money. We're going to open up those libel laws. But is there anything Trump or his lawyers can do to change the libel laws? Joining me to answer that is an expert in the area, Enrique Armijo, a professor at Elon University Law School. Enrique, let's begin with a little primer on libel. What is it? Libel is a a statement uh, either written or spoken that is both false and harms the reputation of the person that that statement is about. And and this is a longstanding uh, part of the law of torts, uh, part of state law. And if that reputation, uh, if the harm to that reputation is great enough, that that makes the person who that statement was about uh, eligible to collect damages from the person who said or wrote the libelous statement. So this is state law versus federal law. That's absolutely right. Each uh, state has its own interpretation of, of what constitutes uh, a libelous statement, what level of fault uh, a person bringing a libel claim has to show that the statement was made with. Uh, kind of overarching all of this, though, is a constitutional rule that comes from a case from 1964 the Supreme Court decided called New York Times versus Sullivan. And what that case says is that if a statement is about a public official, then state law can can only say that that the person who made that statement can be liable if the statement is made with actual malice, which means the person made the statement knowing it was false or not caring uh, whether or not the statement is false. So then is there anything that a president can do to change libel laws even if a a review is done? Well, the, 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 the folks who are saying that the president has zero power to change libel law because libel law is state law and every law ha- every state has different libel laws aren't being quite accurate here. What the, what the president does have the power to do is appoint Supreme Court justices. And if President Trump chose to appoint Supreme Court justices that thought the rule in New York Times versus Sullivan is wrong, Again, the requirement that says the U.S. the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution says that actual malice is required for a libel lawsuit brought by a public official. 
if that case was overturned, which the Supreme Court only has the power to do, then states would be free to do what they wanted and say that uh, that public officials could sue uh, news publications for libel uh, based on negligence alone. In other words, the, the, that the news organization acted unreasonably, uh, didn't check the sources that a careful news organization might have. So it's not quite accurate to say the president can do nothing. Uh, Justice Scalia actually uh, came out and said a few years ago that he thought that this rule that basically – constitutionalizes state libel law was wrong. He thought that states should be able to do whatever they want with respect to public officials and setting the standard of proof, setting the degree of fault. And if the if President Trump had the opportunity to appoint enough justices who felt the same way, uh, then he could have a real effect on state libel law. That would be an uphill battle, wouldn't it? And it would take quite some time, if ever. It certainly, it certainly would be. Uh, you know, the, the, the 1964 rule of New York Times versus Sullivan is absolutely entrenched. It was a unanimous opinion at that time. Uh, the court has said again and again that the First Amendment requires uh, some space. It requires us to be able to talk about our public officials and it has to protect us if we say things about public officials that turn out to be factually false. Um, that public officials should base, basically accept the risk of being talked about in ways that might harm their reputations. Uh, so, so this is really as entrenched as a constitutional rule as we have. But having said that, constitutional rules last only as long as five justices uh, on the court decide that they should be the law. Enrique, I want to look closer at what uh, Trump said. He said, you can't say things that are false, knowingly false. And he also said in his in his uh, during the campaign, when they write purposely negative and horrible and false articles, if the media publishes something that is false on purpose, can they be found liable? That's exactly right. And, and that's one of the, the most interesting things about this debate. Uh, President Trump, uh, intentionally or not, is actually stating the correct <laughs> law with respect to libel. If a public official were be able to say, uh, as in the clip of the president you just played, that uh, that a, a book, a statement in a book was knowingly false, that the person who wrote that book said something about a public official that was knowingly false, then that public official would be able to show actual malice. But the problem, uh, as the president sees it from the actual malice standard, is how difficult it is to show that someone who published a statement that was defamatory and that was false had that state of mind. In other words, knew that it was false and made the statement anyway. But as you, as your question implies, the president is stating the law completely correctly. The problem is showing uh, that level of fault with respect to the person who made the libelous statement. Trump is suing BuzzFeed and Fusion GPS for defamation over allegations about him in that well-known but unproven dossier. What chance does that lawsuit have? Uh, none. Um, uh, there, there is probably no federal court in the United States who would say uh, that a that a statement that was made um, pursuant to an investigation uh, such as this one would constitute actual malice, or that republishing the statement would constitute actual malice. So the the reason that, that that President Trump or people associated with him can sue BuzzFeed uh, for a statement in the dossier, or the the reason that they can sue uh, Michael Wolff for a statement that that Steve Bannon made to Michael Wolff is because of 
the republication rule in libel law, which basically says I can be just as liable for repeating someone else's libelous statement as the person who uh, who made the statement to begin with. But the courts are very firm, as I said, on the idea that we need to be able to talk about our public officials. Uh, this is what the First Amendment is for. It's intended to protect that kind of debate. Even if some of those statements turn out to be false, uh, in most cases they're not made with knowing falsity. And that's the difference. And that, I think, is what... Fascinating area of the law. Thanks for being here, Enrique. That's Enrique Armijo, professor at Elon University Law School. The Supreme Court heard arguments yesterday in an Ohio case that could shape who gets to cast ballots in November election. Thousands of Ohio residents got a surprise when they went to vote in 2015. They couldn't because they were no longer registered. Election officials in Ohio send notices to voters who haven't voted in two years. And if the voters don't respond and don't vote in the next four years, they remove them from the rolls. Joining me is Jonathan Brader, counsel at the Brennan Center's Democracy Program. Jonathan, you were at the arguments, were they lively? There was a lot of engagement from the justices. Ohio um, basically is trying to convince the court that a law that says that they cannot purge voters for failure to vote means that they can purge voters for failure to vote. Um, In my estimation, they were not very successful in carrying that burden. and there was certainly a lot of interest um, in what the best interpretation of the statute is in light of uh, its purpose in protecting voters against unlawful purges. What was the central question the justices were interested in, or was there a central question? I think there were a couple um, central um, sources of inquiry. One was, um, you know, how the uh, Ohio could argue essentially that um, its process was not actually removing voters um, because they failed to vote. Ohio is essentially claiming that because they send a notice um, intermittent to the non-voting um, and the person does not respond to that, that they can somehow uh, infer from that that the person has moved. Um, as several of the justices, including Justice Sotomayor, pointed out, however, it's not a reasonable basis to think somebody has moved um, just because uh, they have not voted in one election. There was also a lot of questions about the list maintenance process in general. Several of the justices did seem to indicate that they were in favor or they would uphold the Ohio system, including Justice Stephen Breyer. Some of his questions were uh, about what happens to to uh, to dead people on the rolls. And he also said, what are they supposed to do? Is Rhode Island supposed to look at the Tasmanian voting records or hospital records? So... Did he seem to you to be leaning in the direction of supporting Ohio? I think Justice Breyer was understandably interested in ensuring that states have procedures in place whereby they can remove uh, ineligible people from the rolls. That's something that everybody wants. Nobody wants there to be deadwood on the voter rolls. Uh, There are uh, a lot of procedures in place. Um, which did come out during the argument for states to do that. You know, if a piece of mail bounces back indicating that someone has moved, um, if death records from either states or national databases um, come back indicating that someone has died, uh, motor vehicle records. So there really is a wide range of information available that allows you to draw a reasonable inference that someone actually is no longer eligible. Not voting in one election, however, doesn't fit that category. It doesn't really tell you anything when many, many Americans uh, will skip voting in one election. Chief Judge. 
Justice John Roberts seemed to disagree with that. He said this notice doesn't tell them nothing. It tells them that they did not respond to a notice that says you're going to lose the registration if you don't vote through the two years, the two elections. So he certainly seemed to be, his question seemed to indicate that he was on the side of Ohio. Well, I, I think it's important to recognize that there's a big difference between not getting a response to a mailer and getting a bounce back. So there's two different types of mailers that states send out to state uh, to voters, and I think they're not eligible. One is affordable notice, um, which can theoretically be sent to another address if the person doesn't live uh, where you originally sent it. That can be used as confirmation. Um, another one is non-affordable, which means if the voter has moved, it'll bounce back. So when states do get those bounce backs, that tells them something, um, that somebody uh, has moved or probably has moved. If uh, they just don't get a response, though, you can't really infer anything from that because most people just take these mailers and throw them in the trash. So that's, that's the argument on the challenger's side. What was the best argument on Ohio's side? I think Ohio uh, was essentially trying to convince the court um, that, you know, they need to have some method of ensuring that um, they can identify people who have moved and they want to make sure they're keeping their voter rolls up to date. That's an understandable um, impulse, and, you know, they they were uh, trying to convince the court that they want to keep up-to-date rolls. The specific procedure which they're trying to use, however, is hard to defend when it contradicts the clear language of the federal law. It does seem, though, did it seem to you as if several of the justices were supportive of Ohio's need to purge their election uh, rolls? I think there certainly are uh, understandable um, concerns about, you know, maintaining accurate voter rolls. There were questions from some of the justices, including Justice Alito, um, that indicated that they were sensitive to that um, policy uh, priority. but, you know, again, Ohio, uh, in my estimation, did not carry their burden of convincing the court that this process was permitted by law or even that it was a reasonable way of maintaining the voter rolls. How many uh, states use voter inactivity to purge their databases? So Ohio is an extreme outlier in this regard. It is the only state that uses failure to vote in a single election to trigger voter removal proceedings. There are a handful of states, five other states, that will use inactivity um, over a longer period of time as part of the process uh, to remove voters, but Ohio is the only one that does it this way. Thank you for being here on Bloomberg Politics, Policy, Power, and Law. That's Jonathan Brader. He is counsel at the Brennan Center's Democracy Program. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.